First of all, my name is Nathan Crisp. Hi, Nathan. Hello. Um, it's, I genuinely feel honored to be back with you guys. I spoke a couple months ago, and so I feel honored to be back. I was actually sitting over here just two weeks ago talking to Brian, and he asked me what I was learning, and I told him, and he was like, wow, that sounds like a good thing to talk about it study. So be careful what you say around Brian. Otherwise, you might find yourself up here. Um, it's actually kind of funny because I was supposed to be working today and my team is back working right now. But I told that to Brian when he asked me to speak and he said that I could tell my boss I could put in a plug for camp if I came and speak. So, or spoke. So here is my plug for camp. Um, I work at Covenant Cedars Bible Camp and I truly believe it's a great ministry. We try very hard to be very <coughs> biblically grounded in today's world, which is, as you guys know, not necessarily an easy thing to do, but we do try very hard to stay very well grounded in that. And so a couple things with that. First of all, um, we do need a lot of help to make what we do happen. And so if you are between the ages of upper high school, college age, and you would love to come and serve for an entire summer with us for, as a paid position, I would love to talk to you about what that could look like. And I do believe it's a great summer of stretching in service as well as growth in daily devotions and teaching and all of that kind of stuff. It's a really fantastic opportunity, I believe. And so if you're between the ages of like 15 and 23 and that interests you, I would love to be able to talk to you about that. However, we also need a lot of volunteers. And so if you guys are like having fun and telling kids about Jesus and want to come and hang out with us for just a couple days or a week, and you're between the ages of like 15 and 100, I would love to talk to you about options to come out there and volunteer. But additionally, if you ever are just looking for a camp that you want to send your kids to, um, that is biblically grounded and uh, does a really good job in that, I believe. I would love to talk to you about that as well. And you can email me if you want. My email is nathan at cedars.org, or you can just go on our website, which is cedars.org, and get more information about all of that. All right, that's my plug for camp. When Paul wrote this verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, um, I truly believe it. he did it to warn um, us that in the end people would be deceived, as at least in part of this. If we apply that concept, that means that people who are reading this, in the end, at least to some extent, will be deceived, or at least some people. I don't think it matters how much you have studied the word or how well you think you know the word. I believe that if you are not filling your mind every day and consistently with the word of God, opening this and reading truth, that in the end that you could be deceived. Um, additionally, I think it's important that we pray and ask God continually to show us or reveal to us if there is anything that we believe that is not correct um, and ask him to reveal that to us. But I think it's important that we realize that he's going to reveal that to us again through truth, through the word of God. And so it is just vital, I believe, now more than ever that we are in the word of God. And um, I'm not going to say that we are in the end times, but I will say that we're closer today than we were yesterday. And so every day we get closer to this, there's going to be more and more deception. So let's read this or 
Um, yeah. Sorry. Let's read this then together. Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebel- rebellion came, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. I have done devotions consistently for years and read probably a chapter or so a day. And probably about in August of this year, I really became convicted that it just wasn't enough that I needed to be in the word even more and just leaning into truth and studying truth. And so starting in August, I personally became convicted. I'm not saying any of you guys need to do this, but I personally became convicted that I wanted to read through the Bible chronologically before the end of the year. So from August to December, I wanted to read through the Bible chronologically. And I was, I jumped around, I ended up jumping around a little bit, but that was what I set out to do. And there was one book that caught my attention in a way that it had not before. And some of the lessons that were in that were lessons that I found to be very applicable to where I was at today. And so that is what we are going to be getting into and going through really that book tonight. That book is not Daniel, but we're going to make a quick stop in Daniel before we get there. Um, I'm just going to read just a little bit of this, not all of it by any means, but you guys will get the idea. But in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. I think the sovereignty of God is something that is often hard to understand. I think we all believe that God is a sovereign God, but just what that truly means is sometimes hard to comprehend. And I think most of us would typically take stands that either um, God allows things to happen or that God does things uh, specifically. And a lot of times when we look at trouble and what most would regard as bad things happening, like what happened here in the beginning of Daniel, a lot of us would look at this as something that God allowed to happen. However, there's a different book of the Bible that gives us a very clear answer to that question, and that is where we are going to be spending our time tonight. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you guys to open it up to Habakkuk um, with us, because we're going to be spending a lot of time in Habakkuk tonight. We are going to really be taking like a 40,000 foot bombing run over Habakkuk where I'm going to make a lot of points and and point out some different things along the way and not dive too specifically deep into any one concept. And that is, in my opinion, very deliberate or that's how I intended this to go. And I would really encourage you guys to go back and study some of this and really dig into this because I do believe that this is a really amazing book. And again, a book that caught my attention recently that um, hadn't been something that had done that in the past. There's a really great sermon series out there on the book of Habakkuk by Alistair Begg. And so if you guys are ever looking for videos or podcasts to listen to, he did a fantastic job in um, 
if I stole some of this from anybody, it would definitely be him in the process of, of uh, putting this together. But he did. It's like eight videos or something on it, and we're going to squeeze this as much as we can into one. All right. Let's start with Habakkuk chapter 1, 1 through 4. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet saw. Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Um, starting right at the top uh, where it says oracle, some translations will have that translated as burden. And I think that that's a really neat word or an interesting word to fill in right there in that what God is revealing to him, what God is showing is a burden for him that he is then carrying to reveal or it's kind of his, his lot in life. Habakkuk here is saying really two things. First of all, that he has issues with God's timing, which is what he's crying out in verse 2, where he says, how long? The other thing is that he's uh, saying he has issues with God's methods, which is what we see in verse 3, where he says, why do you make me see iniquity? Or just crying out, why? And so it's because of that, that as you saw on the first slide, I titled this, how long and why? And that is something that I have been pondering so much over the last really month, month and a half, is just that concept of how long and why. I'm not sure about you, but I am often amazed at how close the Old Testament seems to 2023 America. And when I read through this and just read iniquity, violence, destruction, lawlessness, no justice, wicked is winning, and the righteous are beat down. Just that that feels really close to where I feel like in America we are at often today. Uh, I think it's important to also note that he is writing this to God's people. This isn't to the rest of the world or the secular world. He is writing and saying these things about the Israelites or the people in Judah. Uh, in verse 4, he says the law is paralyzed in, in that that is the Torah. So he's saying the Torah is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. When I read this, I stopped and thought how many times I have cried out again, how long and why. And I think it's very possible that a lot of us are saying that right now with events that are going on in Israel and asking God, like, how long and why are you going to tolerate Israel being attacked and the wicked that is happening over there? But even still here in our own country, how long and why are you going to tolerate whatever's going on with like the LGBTQ issues? How long and why are you going to tolerate newborns being murdered with abortion or not newborns, unborn babies being murdered with abortion? But even in my personal life, I find myself crying out how long and why and I almost said early on that I wasn't going to cry in the midst of this, but We'll see what happens. Maybe. But four years ago, I was going through a divorce. 
and I cannot tell you how many times I cried out how long and why. Especially about the circumstances really surrounding that. Before we go on, I'm going to pause here for a minute. And I want you guys to think about your own lives and when you have cried out, how long and why. Give me a second. How long and why have you been or have you cried out that to God about anything in our world, anything in your personal life, anything? I just want you guys to reflect along upon that for a minute. So we're going to sit here in silence for a minute. And I just want you guys to just do a personal reflection on that. Hopefully there's something, if not many things that came to all of your minds. But there's a couple things that I want us to see here in just these first four verses of Habakkuk. And that is, first of all, he took his cares to the only place that it mattered, and that is to God. He laid his cares, his concerns at the feet of God. Another thing that I want to point out here, and this is kind of a tricky one, so bear with me, but be grateful that God is not so unkind as to answer all of our prayers. He, he cried out, Injustice, violence, iniquity. But we are all sinners, equally guilty. We are not guilty because of Adam, but we are guilty with Adam. And we all are sinners uh, as a verb, not as noun. That's an important distinction. If you hadn't heard Brian's message on that that he gave three or four weeks ago, so it was a good one. Um, and so at least in some extent, all of the things that Habakkuk was crying out here that he saw around, he was also guilty of in his heart. And so again, as to be grateful that God deals with us mercifully. I think a common question that I hear often, especially when I deal or am speaking with non-believers is a question like what kind of like what Habakkuk is saying here, or why doesn't God do something or how long will God allow this bad stuff to happen? And we have one important advantage over Habakkuk in that line, and that is Jesus and the cross. And so if we are ever asked that, I think it's really important that we are able to very confidently say that, first of all, my God has done something and point them to the cross and be able to say that my God will do something and point them to the coming judgment and God's wrath being poured out on evil. We also need to be able to say that my God is doing something and show them God's kindness in that he is working in a way when, or in this way when evil deserves far worse and in doing so giving people a second chance and an opportunity to come and know him. And last, that God is on his throne even when all we see around us is injustice, evil, and chaos. And that it's true that God is on his throne today. It was true that he was on his throne on October 7th when the terrorist attack happened in Israel. And it'll be true tomorrow and every day for the rest of eternity. 
All right, we're going to look at how God responds now to um, Habakkuk's complaint. So this is Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in the days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are uh, dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle and swift to devour. They all come uh, for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And so in the light of recent events in Israel, I'm not saying that God is rising up the Palestinians. However, I do think it's important to know that this is well within God's, uh, in God, inside God's sovereign control. In this instance, the Chaldeans, it uses the word Chaldeans, but that is the same as saying Babylon or the Babylonians. The rising up of a wicked superpower of the day is only but a tool in the hand of Yahweh. All of the events of our lifetimes is equally under God's control. The Babylonians' rise was not due to their own might, political strategy, but only the hand of God. And again, this is God's kindness at work, and that this is not even a drop in the bucket compared to the wrath that this evil deserves. Additionally, I think it's really important to see that God's goodness and God's mercy is here, and it's upon his remnant. We're going to go back really quick to the same section that we were at before in Daniel 1. And so down here at the end, you can see that if you start reading in verse 6, that among the people who were taken out of Judah and into Babylon, as I'm sure you guys are aware of the stories, are uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And life was not easy for them, being taken out of where they were, in Judah and taken into Babylon. At times they were thrown in jail, but they always, always lived by convictions. They always lived by the law and uh, were obedient to God. And in the end, you guys are all very familiar with the stories of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and just how God protected his remnant. Additionally, we see more examples of this. So there's a couple other books of the Bible that are written at the exact same time that these events are transpiring. One of them is Jeremiah. So here in Jeremiah 39, 11, and 12, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan. I'm not very good with biblical names. I know they're tough, but anyway. The captain of the guard saying, take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as well, or deal with him as he tells you. So again, this is God protecting his remnant. It is very clear through the course of the Bible that God loves his bride, the remnant, and he does and will look after her. Um, 
So if you want to get more context as far as what's going on in the time of Habakkuk, obviously Daniel, we've kind of looked at that. That book is written at the same time. Jeremiah, that book is written at the same time. And so is Second Kings. So those are all places that you guys can jump around if you want to look into some of this more on your own later. But we're going to go back to the book of Habakkuk. So here we are, Habakkuk 1, 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, ha have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I think this reply is very interesting because effectively Habakkuk is saying, if we kind of put some of this stuff together, he's, he's saying to God, like, God, we are bad. Like, things are bad here right now. And he admitted that, but he's effectively saying here that what God is about to do is worse for what he, for them than what was happening uh, in the first place, being taken over by the Babylonians. And additionally, he really starts off by almost questioning the character of God, saying, like, God, if you're really good, how could you do this? Like, how could you allow the Babylonians, or how could you not allow that, but how could you use them to come in for judgment? In verse 2 through 4, he was asking God to intervene to save him from the evil people. And now he is asking God to intervene to save him from what God is doing. Habakkuk is asking many questions of justice and injustice. And those questions will not be answered once and for all until the cross. The most unjust act that has ever happened. Here in Luke 23, 39 through 41, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for a uh, reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Again, all of the justice or acts of injustice, all of those kind of things that Habakkuk is witnessing in his day was not uh, fully answered again until the cross. Jumping back to Habakkuk, right at the beginning of chapter two, he concludes what he is saying when he says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I think that this is a really good response in all reality, like when God speaks to us or when we pray and have something to say to God, that we are then taking up a watch post, that we are earnestly looking and waiting for the Lord. But it is kind of interesting here on the very last line when he says, 
but basically paraphrase, he says, but believe me, I'm going to have something to say about it based on how this has gone so far and just not going how he wanted it to go. All right, we're going to keep moving in Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, write this vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie if it seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is, a, is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. I am not a Hebrew scholar or anywhere close to that. However, based on some things that I read in verse 5, uh, some translations will use the word wine and some translations will use the word wealth right there. Apparently those two words in Hebrew are almost identical. And so we do see both of those used depending on the translation. I think New King James says wealth, where I'm reading here in ESV, and it says wine. What God is now saying to Habakkuk is not for that time that he is in, but in for the end times. I'm not going to put it up, but if you want to cross-reference any of this, Psalm 73 talks more kind of in-depth about some of this. And now kind of the next thing that happens in Habakkuk is he goes through five woes. And so we're going to look at those kind of briefly because once we get to the end, there's some really, really good parts that I don't want to miss. So we're going to go over some of these kind of quickly. But in Habakkuk 2, 6 through 8, we see woe to injustice and greed. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing? and riddles for him to say woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and uh, many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. What he's basically saying here again is with greed and extortion, that all those things that you pile up from under other people will come crashing down on you. Woe to tyrants in Habakkuk 2, 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from all, the reach of harm you have deserved or devised devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples you have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond it was kind of interesting and i'm not going to say that this is a prophecy about hitler but it was very interesting to me when i read this the first time how much this struck me about Hitler, even to the point that he had a very famed eagle's nest that he talked about that the Third Reich 
had given him on his 50th birthday that he would take people to and be very safe and have tea out there. And so I thought the word nest in here was very interesting and just how this is a woe to tyrants and how much that reminded me of Hitler. Woe to cruelty in verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not for the Lord of hosts and people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Filling the earth is something that I think is very interesting in the Bible. And I'm sure it is seen multiple times, but we're just going to look at two quick examples of when it talks about the earth being full or being filled. The first is right in the beginning in Genesis 1:28, And there's a reason that I'm bringing this up. I promise. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God at the very beginning was literally commanding Adam and Eve, I believe to one, be fruitful and multiply, but also to fill the earth, to like spread out and fill the earth. We see this again right away in Genesis eleven eight, and so the Lord, uh, so the Lord, dispersed them from their, from their over the face of the earth. Oh, wow, I did not read that well. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and left off, and they left off building the city. I think the thing that's really interesting about this or just the concept of filling the earth as we see it again here is like God told Adam and Eve to again spread out and fill the earth and they didn't. They clumped back up and came together. And so here in Genesis 11 verse 8, we see God again saying spread out and fill the earth. And before I say what I'm about to say, I'm going to say that I'm not going to sit here and say that the rural areas are perfect by any means or that we are... Um, don't have our own problems. However, I think it's really amazing to see how much wickedness comes out of the cities, whether it be drugs, crimes, um, even just like the liberal ideal or the liberal concept that exists almost explicitly inside cities. Um, LGBTQ stuff, again, abortions, like all this stuff is just rampant inside cities. And God told them over and over, like, don't clump up, spread out, fill the earth. And I believe, again, he knew that it was because people who clump up are tend to do really bad things. But anyway, that's my theory. You can do it that way you want. Um, back to Habakkuk. Do we have two more woes? Woe to him. Uh, so this is immorality. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You have, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and will as will the destruction of the beast that 
uh, terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. I think it's pretty commonly seen that when human trafficking and those kind of things happen, that they keep those victims very uh, drugged up or on something. And one, people are just easier to control when they're under the influence. But two, it's just like the debauchery and the evilness that exists there is just a little bit easier to handle, I think, when you're under the influence. And that's something that I think you see across all kinds and all forms of wickedness, whether it be, you know, stuff like gambling, strip clubs, whatever, that when you get into those kind of places, often alcohol is just flowing. Another thing that I think is really interesting here is in the end, in verse 17, when it talks about the violence done to Lebanon and then after that to the beasts. Lebanon is really known or kind of renowned for its force. And they talk about their cedars and they got cedars. Solomon got cedars for the temple from Lebanon and all of that kind of stuff. And so I really believe like what it's saying here is talking about violence done to like the earth, to the trees and to the animals within it. And I think to be a Christian is to be a Christian about everything. Like the Bible should really dictate how we look at everything in our lives whether it be our family, our friends, um, relationships, all of that kind of stuff, to even politically and how we vote, to how we care for the earth. And I believe here, like, it is really saying, in my opinion, that we are to be good stewards of this, to the forest, to the animals. Um, I'm not in any way, shape, or form advocating to be a tree hugger or a vegan or any of those kind of things, because I'm not. But I do think that there is a clear call to be here and elsewhere in the Bible, clear to be good or a call to be good stewards of that. All right. The last woe is idolatry. What profit is an idol when it its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. I think idolatry at times is very easy to spot. We see it in the Bible when they're making golden calves and those kind of things like in Exodus. Um, but we certainly see it other times as well. And in some religions around the world, like Hinduism, it's very easy to see again, how they're just making these idols and worshiping these idols. However, I think idolatry here in America is much harder to spot, but just as prevalent as it is in Hinduism or anywhere else. I think in America, we really serve the idol of ourselves and we make ourselves into an idol in so many ways. I mean, we are so, so selfish as a society. Um, Alistair Beck has another book called Brave by Faith. 
and it is really good and it talks about it goes into all kinds of things about idolatry but even talking about um, making family and friends into idols um, politics into idols all kinds of stuff and it's it's a really convicting read in, in some of those sections if you uh, ever want to read into that more but here's one quote by Alistair Begg but it says idolatry in your life and more broadly in society precedes immorality if we would understand why immorality is tolerated or even promoted we need to look behind the behavior to the worship to the idol <laughs> i looked up a couple different times for some different quotes and things that i could add into this that were outside of the bible or just other people's perspective and it was kind of interesting because i wrote logan a text message a couple of weeks ago asking if we could sing this song or not a psalm uh hymn that i had never heard by a guy named william cooper and just because there were some things in there and it was called uh god works in a mysterious way i think is what it was called i don't remember right now but it was a hymn that i had not heard but it was very profound and if you guys aren't familiar with it i would really encourage you guys to look it up and listen to it and you can find it on youtube and it's very profound but here is a quote by william cooper that is totally unrelated to that when i was looking for some different things about idolatry this popped up and i was like man william cooper is just popping up all over the place so here's this quote which is the dearest idol i have known wherever that idol be help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee and i think that that's a really profound concept is just making sure that god is on the throne i think it's it's a very hard thing to think about really by all accounts good things being idols in our lives however whenever anything is our focus instead of god we are making those things into idols and so just making sure that god is on the throne and god is on the throne of our heart all right we're gonna jump now into chapter three we are flying through habakkuk but it gets in my opinion it gets really really good and i love i have read chapter three so many times of Habakkuk and read it out loud and just like let these words kind of just pour into my life over the last several several months and so we're going to read through chapter three a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shaganoth again I'm not very good with biblical names oh lord I have heard the report of you and your work oh lord do I fear in the midst of the of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy god came from taman and the holy one from mount paran selah his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power taman and mount paran are both which i'm probably not saying those any close to right but both of those are on the east side of israel and so when habakkuk is writing this what he is really saying is that god's glory is like the sunrise in fact some uh translations again i think king james or new king james in verse four where it says light rates actually translate that as sunrise Habakkuk 3, 5 through 7. Before, 
Oh, before I read this, um, the next three slides are going to be seemingly very metaphorical about talking about the power of God. However, it's actually not metaphors. These are the next three slides are all going to read of the power of God, but these are all things that have really happened. And we can find those in Judges 4, 5, and then the book of Exodus kind of all over the place. So just kind of keep that in mind that it's like, this isn't metaphor about God's power. This is something that has really happened. But before him went pestilence and plagues, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered and everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of the Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariots on your chariot of salvation you stripped the sheath from your bow calling for many uh many arrows selah you split the earth with rivers the mountains saw you and writhed the raging waters swept on the depth gave forth its voice sorry the depth the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like the whirlwinds to scatter me, rejoicing as it, if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty waters. I think that this verse, I think right here in verse 13, this is something that really kind of is a synopsis of everything that we've read, where it talks about God loving his people and the salvation of his people and going out for them, as well as not tolerating evil and the justice and the wicked. Um, and really here, if not anywhere else, it really talks about how, yes, God is rising up the Babylonians, but at the same time, he'll deal with them as well in his own time. Again, we're not going to get into these, but if you wanted to cross-reference more of this, Psalm 105 and Psalm 132 are, are really good places to look. All right, we are getting near to the end already. Habakkuk 3.16 I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This prophecy, the whole book of Habakkuk, opened 
with doubts and problems and ends in delights and praise. It is important to see nothing about the circumstances that Habakkuk was in changed. He is still in the same mess it started in. And in fact, he knows that it's going to get worse with the Babylonians now coming in. But what changed was his perspective. What changed is his heart. He drew close to God and laid his cares at his feet. What started off with how long and why has changed to awe and wonder. I encourage you guys, especially in these uncertain times, to read this often. Open your heart to God and be ready to be changed like Habakkuk was changed. There's two things that we see. If you're looking at your Bible, you can kind of jump back and forth and see this. I don't have it on a slide, though. But starting in, there are two things that we see that Habakkuk did that I think are really important to know. One is starting in verse 2 of chapter 3, he prayed fervently. And then here in verse 16 of chapter 3, he waited patiently. And I think that those are two things that on top of reading the word and bringing the truth into our lives consistently that we need to be doing as well as praying fervently and waiting patiently. This is the end. This is the end of uh, Habakkuk in chapter 3, 17 and 19. Before I read this, there are two very important things that I want you guys to see in this. But I think that this is said so well and gives so much hope that I don't have want to speak really anymore after it. So I'm going to say these things beforehand. Um, but the first is that in verse 18, he does not say, I will rejoice. He said, I will rejoice in the Lord. And he does not say, I will have joy. He says, I will have joy in the God of my salvation. And I think that those are very, very important distinctions, especially when faced with trouble and calamity like what Habakkuk was. All right, let's read this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock cut off, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there, uh, wow, sorry, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Well, that is all I have for you guys. So we're going to wrap up a little bit early, but I'm just going to pray for us. Uh, and then we will end. Dear God, I just thank you so much for who you are. I just thank you so much that you are on your throne today. Thank you that you were on your throne over the events that happened in Israel, over the events that happened in Maine and everything else that happened, God. And I thank you that you are on your throne tomorrow and every day for the rest of eternity. God, I just pray that as a 
Christian people, God, that we are all seeking after you and that you will just give us a hunger and thirst for your word and for your truth. God, I just pray that we, during these times, can just always come back and say that we will rejoice in the Lord and we will take joy in the God of our salvation. God, I just specifically want to take a moment just to pray again for Israel and for the peace of Jerusalem as we are called to do. And like I said earlier, um, the cross changed everything. And I pray for the people there, just that they will see the cross and that they too will know that the cross changed everything. And that that peace that comes from Jesus is the peace that they need. I just thank you for who you are, for being good. And again, I thank you for being on your throne. In Jesus' name I pray.